Good morning to you all. Thank you for uh, being with us today and uh, taking some time to uh, spend the Lord's Day at church worshiping the Lord. What a blessing that we have, what an opportunity that we have. And uh, today I'm thankful for the heater and that we don't have to be outside in the weather. So praise God for that. And we are going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 15. So if you'll be turning there in your Bibles, I'm going to read that to us in just a moment. And uh, while you're turning there, I wanted to take uh, some time and uh, give a special uh, thank you to all of our volunteers uh, as we announce week after week about Children's Church and, and uh, we talk about Sunday school and we talk about these different things that go on. None of those things happens without uh, usually a lot of people there uh, to make them happen. And so we are appreciative. I'm appreciative of all the volunteers that we have who uh, work behind the scenes and uh, get things done that I don't even know about and uh, you probably don't even know about, but the uh, temperature is right in here and that's because a volunteer did that and uh, the sound is working and that's because a volunteer does that and uh, etc. So uh, I am grateful for uh, all of the uh, volunteers that we have. Uh, we appreciate them and, and appreciate you. And I know that uh, we have events that go on different uh, days of the week, different times of day, and uh, sometimes it requires great sacrifice, and uh, we are appreciative. So actually, I would like to give a round of applause to all the volunteers. And so uh, let's turn to Genesis 15. I want to read for us. Uh, we covered verses 1 through 6 last week, and uh, this week we are going to move on and, uh, and go from there. Uh, but since uh, the first paragraph, the one we covered last week, and this one uh, are so closely related, I want to start reading in Genesis 15 in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause at this point in our service this morning, grateful that we have your word before us, grateful that we have the freedoms to study and proclaim your word. We get to teach it and preach it freely. We get to worship you freely. We're grateful that we have this passage before us that is such an important passage pointing to your covenant that you made with Abram. Father, as we see the revelation of your character and of your commitment, I pray, Father, that we would be drawn to you in our own desires and our own love for you, that as we see you more clearly in this passage, as we see more clearly the nature of this redemption that we have in Christ, may we respond in love all the greater. May we rejoice in Christ our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen. The title of our passage today, or of our sermon anyway, is Covenant with Abraham. And covenant is not a word we use all that much. Uh, of course, it's found in the Bible and we read it there, but in, uh, in our culture we don't really use it all that much. But really, uh, probably the best known covenant that we uh, deal with um, is marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship where there are promises made, there are stipulations given, and we come together in a very special ceremony, and we, have, uh, we dress in a particular way, and we have certain things happen uh, that have symbolism and have meaning that are pointing to the union of two people, uh, in two persons into um, uh, this, this union where they are one flesh. And so... Uh, though we don't use the term covenant a whole lot in our everyday vocabulary, we have the conception um, about marriage uh, that kind of can help us understand a little bit about uh, this covenant, about two people agreeing together, making promises to one another. It's very formal. It's very official. It's very binding. I know in our day and age uh, that, that we, we tend to take a different uh, perspective perhaps on on marriage, at least in the broader culture, but that idea of the covenant and covenanting together is going to be important in this passage. And so, as we look to uh, our passage, we're going to mainly be focusing on uh, verses 7 and following here, and we're going to see various things revealed about God and God's relationship with Abram. We've seen a whole lot go on. Uh, we've seen events happen with Abram, and, uh, and here we have a very, very special passage. We talked last week in verses 1 through 6 about the promise that God was making there uh, regarding the seed, 
the provision of seed, the provision of offspring. And, and he took Abram out and had him look at the skies and, and see the stars. And he said, okay, Abram, go ahead and, and start counting. And when you're tired, uh, let me know. Um, if you can count those stars, you'll be able to count your offspring. And, uh, and so God made this, uh, this uh, picture go out before uh, that, that Abraham could see, that he could, that he could reflect back on, that, that would remind him of this great truth. And his response was that great verse that we read about there in verse 6, he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. It was a promise given, and it was a big promise. It was a bold promise. And Abram, who is an old man, and his wife is an old woman, and they don't have hope of, of having children, and yet he believed the Lord. And the result of that faith, through that, God counted him as righteous by faith alone. But we're not done with the passage, and, and uh, if we had more time, we could look at both passages stuck together and see the overall development. But as we move on and look at our passage today, we're going to see that the topic changes a little bit, at least for a time. And uh, we're going to learn more about uh, God and His relationship with His people. First of all, we see that the Lord desires to reassure His people. God desires to reassure His people. We see, uh, first of all, God's statement here in verse 7 God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God makes a simple statement. He reminds uh, Abram of who he is, who God is, who Yahweh is. He says, I'm the one who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, not because Abram had forgotten, but as a reminder, as a as a, an illustration of what God is like and what the nature of their relationship is, but he makes a simple statement. He says, I brought you out to give you this land to possess. Now, Abram didn't possess the land. And actually, throughout the course of Abram's life, there comes a point when he buys a little plot and he, he possesses a little tiny piece of the land, like a down payment, like, a, like the beginning of the land. But that's all Abram possesses throughout the course of his life. But here, God comes to him in a time when Abram doesn't yet possess the land, and he says, I brought you out, and the reason I did it was to give you this land. But Abram has a question, as you might imagine, as you would probably have in that time. But he said, verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, how does that, how does that relate to verse 6 that we just read? where this big promise was made about the children. And here Abram's an old man, his, his wife is an old woman, and they're not going to have any children. Yet God comes and says, you're going to have children. You're going to have countless offspring. And Abram believed God, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And now we have another statement made where uh, God says, uh, I am the Lord. I am the one who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans, and I did so to give you this land. And so is, is Abram responding now uh, not believing God? Having just believed God in the face of such a bold promise, is he, is he caving on such a weaker one? I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think he's uh, caving. I don't think he's um, uh, calling God into question, not calling God's uh, word into question. He's not saying, that can't be. God, don't you see the facts? 
Don't you know what's going on? That's, that's not what he's doing. He just seems to be expressing a genuine concern. I've been here a while, Lord, and I don't possess any of it yet. Right? He's, he's uh, just expressing a genuine concern, a struggle that he is having to continue believing God in the face of circumstances. And, and you can kind of relate to Abram, right? Wakes up every morning, I know the promises, what God has given me, and this land is one of those, and oh, that's right, it belongs to other people. I'm a sojourner here. Maybe tomorrow. And he wakes up the next day. <laughs> oh, that's right, I'm a sojourner here. Maybe tomorrow. Right? How long could he keep that up? So I think he's just expressing a genuine concern. This isn't the doubt that says, no, it can't be. It's the doubt that says, I don't, I don't see it yet. It's the same as the uh, father who, uh, speaking with Jesus in Mark chapter 9 and verse 24, says, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? He's struggling along. He's not objecting. He's not rejecting God's word. But it still is a challenge to him. And so he sort of says, Lord, I, I believe you, but help my unbelief. And so he asks that question. And in answer to that, I mean, that's a pretty big question. That's a pretty powerful question. Someone expresses a genuine concern, a genuine, uh, they're really wrestling with this, and they, they, they believe, but they don't see how things are going to work out, and they're kind of struggling with this. And so God's answer is some instructions. <laughs> he says in verse 9, bring me a heifer, three years old, female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Right? So he, he uh, sort of sends uh, Abram off to uh, gather some livestock, and we're we're going to do something uh, with those livestock. And so this is going to be the answer. This is the beginning of the answer that God is giving to him. And so uh, you see, of course, what Abram does. He brought him all these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. So what's going on here? This is a picture. This is an illustration. We talked about a marriage or a wedding ceremony, and there's certain symbolism in the way people stand and in, in the bride coming down and what she wears and the dad and every, the way everyone's seated. It pictures something. Well, what we have going on here is going to picture something. And so God tells Abram to go and get these animals. And so he goes and he gathers the animals and he brings them in, and then he does something very specific and very strange to our eyes. He cuts them in half... That's weird, right? I grew up on a farm, and you don't normally cut an animal in half for normal usage, right? But here you have this picture going on. So he, he, takes, he takes the first animal, he brings it out, and he cuts it in half. And what he would do is he would, he would lay one part over here, like the, 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 the head over here, and then the hind parts over here. And it would be as if it had been separated, and it would make like this like this bloody pathway between them. But it wasn't just one animal. He would take the next animal and cut them in half, and he would put like the head over here and the hind parts here, and, it's, and it's, it's gory. And it's something you would never forget. I remember when I was, uh, I don't know, I was probably 10, and uh, a neighbor uh, accidentally killed a calf. They were working cattle, and, and uh, anyway, they did, so the, the calf ended up dying, and they... That wasn't the plan, but he was kind of a young steer, and they thought, well, let's butcher him, right? And so I'm not going to go into details, but, but uh, they hooked up the, the front-end loader and, you know, attached him to the bucket, and there's this giant beef hanging in the sky, and they're doing all these things 
to butcher this animal, and, and I still can picture it. I still can remember it, and I grew up on a farm. Right? It's a very memorable picture. Well, so he's got, he's got an animal with the head over here and the hind parts here and another animal, the head over here and the hind parts here and another animal, head over here and the hind parts here. And then he takes these two little birds and you don't really want to cut a bird in half. That doesn't really work anyway. So they put one here and one here. And so you end up having this large pathway and it's, and it's gory and it's bloody. And, and you wouldn't really want to walk through it because you can, you know, kind of see into the dissection that's been going on, Right? And so <clears throat> that's what he does. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so Abram goes and he gets these things, and these are all animals that will be used in sacrifice later on. These are, these are normal animals that appear when you read the Old Testament. Uh, these aren't like giraffes or something unusual. These are kind of normal sacrificial animals, and this thing is laid out there. Abram obeys, and having laid it out there, you know, now you've got, you know, you've got dead animals on the ground. You've got raw meat on the ground, and so uh, you see... What happens there? The birds of prey come down on the carcasses. And so Abram's, you know, busy fending off, you know, swiping away the buzzards kind of thing. And, uh, and so this is, this is going to be a big deal. This is going to be uh, quite the image of what's happening uh, right here. But I want to, uh, before we move on through the passage, and this is, this is about to really become uh, a powerful, powerful passage, but I want to pause just for a second to make, uh, make an observation, maybe a, a point of application for us at this point before we get too deep into the imagery itself. And that application is this. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions of God or of His Word. I think some of us have been uh, we, we, we've, we've taken on in our mind a concept that if I ask questions, particularly the wrong kind of questions of God's Word, I will be disloyal. Or I will, I will, I will dig into something that, that uh, maybe is going to cause a problem. But I want to encourage you, don't be afraid to ask questions of God and His Word. Now, there are questions and questions, Right? There's the kind of question that says, well, yeah, I mean, could this really happen? Of course not. I mean, that, that never happened. God never spoke. That's questioning God's word. But that's clearly a rejection of God's word. The, the motivation behind that is, I don't believe this, and I'm just trying to make it, uh, I'm trying to prove to you, you shouldn't believe it either. That's a kind of question. I'm not talking about those kind of questions. There are answers to those questions. By the way, the answer to those questions usually is not an intellectual answer. It's a heart issue. The person rejects God's word. <laughs> And it doesn't matter what it says, they're going to find a way to reject it, right? That's not the kind of question I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of question where you're reading through and you're like, and I read this over here, and I read this here, and they seem to be saying different things. What do I do with that? Right? Those are legitimate questions. That's the kind of question that I'm talking about where, where we're really stumped like, like Abram, he believed God. God, God had made these promises, and, and if, if God is going to give a child to an old couple, surely he can give a land that he already lives in. He doesn't own it yet, but surely he can give that land. But, he, but he's got, I have a question, Lord. I have a question. Don't be afraid to ask questions. I think we actually get ourselves into trouble in our uh, Christian lives very often when we don't ask those questions. That Deep down, the question is there, but we don't voice it. We don't ask it. 
That's when we get ourselves into trouble. It kind of plants a seed of doubt. Well, if I pay too close attention to this thing and that thing, it seems like they say uh, different things. Maybe that's actually a contradiction, and I've just discovered the way to, to explode the Bible and disprove the Bible, and I don't want to do that. right? So we carry this little baby seed around. We don't want to talk about it. God's Word can handle your questions. God can handle your questions. So don't be afraid to, to uh, express those questions, those, uh, those, those doubts to God, um, to ask questions about God. By the way, that's one of the things that, that uh, the elders love to do is uh, deal with those kinds of questions. And, and if you've got those little seeds, bring them out. <laughs> we want to talk about them. We want to see. We want you to uh, work through them and see that God is faithful. So don't be afraid to ask questions. So we see here that the Lord desires to reassure His people. Here, Abram has a question. Just a couple of verses later, after it says so strongly of him, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we're, you know, we're, we're envisioning a crown on Abram's head. You know, he's got a coat of many colors. He's got, you know, like he's, he's, the spotlight is on him. Everything is going great. And the, just two verses later, he's expressing uh, concern. And God, rather than rebuking him, reassures him. God is desirous to reassure his people. And he's desirous to reassure you as well. But we see that his reassurance may not take the form that we would expect that, in fact, fulfillment may come only after suffering and death. He promised to give him the land. It's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be the next day. Suffering, suffering and death may actually precede the fulfillment of these promises. And so we look at verse 12. Right, so Abram's been battling with the birds after having uh, laid down this, this uh, pathway of these animals that have been cut in two, and it's a, it's a gory, bloody picture. And as the sun was going down, that's the time of day when you begin to get scared when you're a kid, right? Sun starts going down. I grew up in Arkansas, and uh, we had what we called um, snake time. And anyone who's lived in the South probably knows what snake time is. That's the time of day when the sun's going down and the snakes come out. So you were playing happily in the yard just a few minutes ago. You get to a certain time of day, it's snake time, you go inside. Right? It's, that's what's happening, right? The sun is going down, it's, it's snake time kind of thing, right? As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. A deep sleep. This isn't just, oh, he fell down and took a nap or he passed out or something. This is, there's something spiritual going on here. God is about to speak. God is about to do something. He is put into this deep sleep and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And not because of evil. Because of God's presence. When you read through Scripture and you read about what God's presence is like when, when God appears or even when an angel appears, the response of the people is not, you know, to take a selfie or to cheer or rejoice, it's usually to fall down. And the first words out of the messenger's mouth, the first words out of God's mouth, just like the first words out of God's mouth in this chapter, fear not. <laughs> Clearly you're afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Like he gives permission not to be afraid. God's presence is holy. And to be in his presence uh, is, is, is a profound and powerful and earth-stopping event. And that's what happens in the life of Abram. God puts him to sleep 
Deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. He is in God's presence. Sometimes we don't have that image of God's presence. We think, oh, that's the time when, when, uh, when all the pain will be gone and, and, and everything will be made easy and, and there will be sheer joy. Well, yes, that's involved. But when God appears to a man, when God is in the presence of a man, a human, there is a dreadful and great darkness. There is a weight. God is holy. So there's an effect of God's presence in verse 12. And then we have an explanation given in verses 13 through the end of that paragraph that uh, the question, the, the, the topic being discussed right now is, is the land. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. So he's talking about what's going to happen to Abram's descendants, namely Jacob and his, uh, his offspring and their family will go down at the end of this book, Genesis, down into the land of Egypt, and they're going to dwell there, and they're going to be received well in the beginning, and then things are going to turn south, and they're going to turn south for a long time. And they're going to be slaves in that land. Well, God is telling Abram in advance that this is going to happen. You're going to go down into Egypt. You're going to be afflicted there. You're going to be slaves there. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, which would be, by the way, an encouragement to the people who are the, they've just come out of Egypt. The people reading this, written by Moses, would be reflecting back and saying, God said this would happen. God said we would go down into Egypt, and sure enough, that's where I was born. And God said that he would judge that nation, and sure enough, I saw the ten plagues. I saw that nation judged, and afterward they will come out, and we've come out, and they will come out with great possessions. And guess what? I went to my Egyptian neighbors, and I asked them, and they gave me a bunch of gold. And so the Egyptians are plundered, right? God is telling in advance what is going to happen here. It would have been a great encouragement to the, the initial uh, readers there. Verse 15, as for you, Abram, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. You, Abram, you're going to die in peace. You're not going to be one of those who goes down into slavery. You're going to die in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, probably a reference to that 400-year period. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God is describing what's going to happen and saying, yes, uh, I'm still talking about the possession of the land, but first there's going to be a large interim. <laughs> where uh, your offspring are going to go down into a foreign land, they're going to serve there, etc. But I will set you free. I will judge that nation. I will bring you out. And when you come out, you will have greater possessions than you went in with. Just like when Abram and Sarai went down into Egypt a couple of chapters earlier. They came out of the land with all these possessions. Right? God, is, God is demonstrating something here. But why is it going to take so long? We don't have a lot of time to spend on it, but the reason it's going to take so long is because of the end of uh, our paragraph there where it says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites would be a shorthand way to refer to all the people who live in the land. And he says, look, there's going to be a long duration, 400 years and more, before you get to go into the land, before your offspring get to go into the land. Why am I waiting so long? Why do you have to wait so long? It's because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Judgment will come upon them when you come out of the land and you go into the land of Canaan. 
come out of Egypt and go into Canaan, you will be uh, executing judgment upon the Amorites and the Hittites and all the others that, that live there. But not yet, because their, their sin is not yet complete. They were, they were a wicked people, exceedingly wicked people. Perversions you can't imagine was commonplace. But God gives 400 years. He says, I will judge them, but 400 years from now. That's grace. That's God being patient. And you wouldn't expect God to be patient with the Amorites, but He, he, he really was. In all that time, they had, they had 400 years to repent. They had 400 years and more to repent, but they, they wouldn't. And He said, judgment's going to come, but judgment's going to come at a more distant time. And so, uh, we have a, a point I want to observe uh, before we move on uh, from this, and that is this. Everyone suffers, but it takes faith to suffer well. Everyone has to wait sometimes, but only we who believe in the God who holds all things can truly wait in hope. Why do I say that? Because sometimes when it seems like God is taking a long time, to fulfill His promises to you. It may be because He is using that time to pour out grace or show patience on others. And you want God to speed up, and I want God to speed up. And if God were to speed up, it's possible that we might be shortchanging something else that's going on. Because I want, I want it fulfilled now. I want to move forward now. And it may be that uh, if I were to get what I wanted and get this fulfillment right now, that I would shortchange something going on somewhere else. For example, you're familiar with, uh, with, with uh, Second Peter and the argument that's going on in, in that epistle where the people have undergone, the church have, has undergone uh, persecution. They've struggled. They've been mistreated. And, and they're, they're, they're asking, when, when is the, the judgment going to come? How long, O oh Lord? How long do we have to keep suffering like this? It's going on and on and on. How long, O oh Lord, do we have to wait before you execute judgment? How long do we have to endure under this persecution? Can't we just have this over with? Can't you just judge these people who have been mistreating us, who have been harming us? When will God finally judge those persecutors already? It seems like he's taking forever to come to the rescue. And then we read 2 Peter 3.9. In the context of that, we read this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You're wanting it to speed up. You're wanting to cut the clock right now. Hit the buzzer already. And God is saying, no, the, the, we need to run out the clock. There needs to be more time because more people will come to repentance. So let's don't steal that opportunity from them by insisting upon our immediate deliverance right now. And so I think, I think uh, this has meaning uh, for us in our lives. Uh, a way to think of it might be this. <clears throat> Not many of us would like to miss a meal. I don't enjoy missing meals, certainly not a day. If I don't eat for a day, that's not fun, right? And probably I'm not all that different from you. 
right? So missing a meal is not fun. I'd, I'd, I'd rather not have that happen, um, right? But how many meals would you be willing to miss if it meant that your children could eat instead? Oh, well, suddenly, not eating today? No problem. I got this. Not eating tomorrow? Okay. So my kids could eat? How, how much would I be willing to endure? You can endure longer than you think. Sometimes we get impatient and we, we want the deliverance already. We want the fulfillment of the promise already. Now, now's the time. We want it now. Right? We think we can't go on. Right? Another day without food? Well, if it meant that your kids got to eat, yes. You'd do it. And you'd probably do it joyfully. Right? I see grandparents nodding their heads. Yes? And so I think that's, that's part of what's going on here is, is that why does the nation of Israel have to endure? Why do the offspring of Abraham have to endure through all of this suffering? There is meaning in it. There is meaning in it. Now, God's multiplying them, and he's doing all kinds of things, and he's going he's to grant them riches, etc., but he's also showing patience to the Amorites. So why do you have to suffer? Why are you suffering? I don't know. I don't know all of those things. He's growing you. He's maturing you. He's, he's, he's helping you in all kinds of ways. He's, I mean, you're maybe the, the comfort that we've talked about, you're receiving comfort from God and other people, and then you get to give that out. One of the reasons you may be suffering and why it's going on, why it's lingering, may be that God is graciously working in the life of someone else in this time. And the, the, the extended duration of your suffering is a blessing to someone else. Well, if I look at it that way, I could probably endure a little bit more. And that's the message that Abram gets here regarding his, his offspring that, yeah, it's going to be a long time, 400 years, but I will be busy showing patience elsewhere. And the suffering that you endure may go on and on. And you may not see an end, and, 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 but God may be working graciously and blessedly in the life of someone else. And I think remembering that can give us patience and help us remember that because God is at work. But then we come to the point. We come to the, the conclusion, move on to the last uh, paragraph here where the Lord obligates himself to fulfill his promises. A couple things to remember before we jump right into verse 17 and this last paragraph here. The first thing to remember is Abram is what? Asleep, right? He's not the active party, <laughs> Uh, he, he's, not, he's not calling the shots. He's not doing the things. Uh, remember where he's doing. He is asleep. And secondly, remember, a great and dreadful darkness has fallen upon him. This is a sober moment. So these things we need to remember as we're diving into verse 17. We're going to talk here about a covenant that we uh, talked about briefly. But remember, a, a covenant is an official and binding agreement between two parties where there are promises made, there are stipulations, and there are consequences for those who don't uphold the covenant. But this covenant, look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So you've got this imagery. Remember the pathway. 
with these animals, with all the gore and the blood and, the, and this, this, this picture, this pathway. See, what would happen in the, old, uh, in the Old Testament times when they wanted to make a covenant, they, would, they didn't say make a covenant, they said cut a covenant. And you could picture that, cutting this animal, cutting this animal. They're cutting a covenant. And what would happen is the two parties to the covenant, those who were making the agreement together, would walk through this bloody pathway. By doing so, they were saying, you see these, these, these parts? You see these, these animals that have, been, that have been cut in half? May that happen to me if I don't uphold my end of the deal. That's what a covenant, how a covenant was cut in this time. It was a very clear image. You'd have blood on your sandals. You know, maybe you got some on your robe. You would remember it. You'd remember the sights. and the, It would stick right? It would stick. And so you'd have, you'd have the two parties of this covenant, and they would go through and pass through these animals. They're, 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 they're obligating themselves to keep this covenant. And if I don't keep this covenant, may this happen to me. That's what they were saying. That's a, a nature of a covenant in this part of the world at this time in history. But what do we see? What do we see? And the sun had gone down and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire. Now, where's Abram? He's asleep. He's able to see this because it's a, a vision. But he's asleep. He's contributing nothing. And while he's sleeping, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. What's that about? Smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Well, it's imagery that you see again and again and again, particularly in the Old Testament, but it shows up again in the New Testament as well. When, when the nation of Israel had just been released from Egypt and they were traveling in the wilderness, what led them? Well, who led them? Of course, God led them. How did God lead them? The appearance of two things, pillar of fire by night, cloud by day, smoke. A smoking fire pot. So you've got, this, you've got this oven and it's just smoking and it's, it's creating, you know, it's a, it's a smoke machine. Like you smoke everywhere, right? Imagery, it's a, it, it, it directs us to God and particularly the, the people uh, who are reading this the first time, those who have come out of the Exodus, who wake up every morning and they look to see if the, if the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud is still there and whether they're going to move on or not. The people, that was burned into their minds. And here we see the, the beginning of that. Here we see the, the, a reference to that same thing. This smoking fire pot travels through. It's, it's God. Smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. You've got, the, you've got the smoke and the fire. You've got the cloud and the fire representing God's presence. God's presence passes through between those pieces that have been cut in half. Abram doesn't pass through. Abram is asleep. Abram is not even able to make this commitment. He's not able to pass through the pieces. He is asleep, and God himself passes through those pieces. And remember what passing through the pieces meant. I am obligating myself to keep this covenant... And if I don't keep this covenant, may this happen to me. Abram doesn't say that. God says that. God is obligating himself to keep his covenant. He will do it. What a picture 
What a picture. And you see in verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He was making a covenant. He was acting it out. He was, he was uh, portraying it. He was cutting a covenant with Abram that very day, obligating himself to keep his promises on pain of death. Man, that's, that is powerful. It would be powerful enough if God were to pass through it and then Abram passed through it. Like, that's binding. That's a big deal. That's a huge thing. But, but, but God does it. God himself is the one who passes through. God himself obligates himself. And he says, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Representative of the people who live in the land, he's saying, I'm giving this to you. I swear it on pain of death. What an amazing thing that God would obligate himself in such a way. Now, the reason I read this uh, together with what came before it is because there is a covenant that God is making with his people. He has just said to Abram, I will give you an heir from your own body. I will give you offspring you could not count. I will give you this land. It's going to take a few centuries because other things are going on, but it's going to belong to your offspring. God has made these promises. And Abram has said, but how will I know? I mean, you've told me, and, and I believe you, but sometimes it's a little tough. How do I know? And so God says, lay out those pieces. God puts Abram to sleep. And Abram sees God, as it were, walk right through those pieces, saying, I guarantee to you, on pain of my own death, God who cannot die, but also God who cannot lie. On pain of my own death, I will do this for you. I will fulfill the promises I have made to you. The promises not just here. The promises go all the way back to chapter 12 and uh, verses 1, 2, and 3, and where God said there, I will bless you and I will make your name great. You will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. God is committing himself to accomplish those things. Well, of course, you and I know how the story ends, and I don't mean just Genesis chapter 15, but, but, but we remember that this promise is made about, about blessing going to all the families of the earth through the offspring of Abraham himself. And we can trace the history through the Old Testament, and we can see that indeed after uh, these years they did go down into the land of Egypt, and they were captive there for 400-some years, and and they came out with all the possessions and they finally did go in and they, and they, they took the land and, and yet there was always something lacking. They were to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And, and, and so, yeah, you could see how there was fulfillment and it was, it was kind of there, and, and, but not really. And there became this expectation of the heir, this seed, not just the numerous of us who are around here in the nation of Israel, not, not, not just you know, all of the people who populated Judea and, and, uh, and, and all of those areas, but the seed who would be the blessing to every family of the earth. 
And they begin to wait. It's the son of David, and they're, and they're waiting, and, they're, and, and there, there's expectation. And finally, finally, an angel comes to a virgin and makes a startling announcement to her. The angel shows up, and as we would expect, he says in Luke chapter 1, do not be afraid, Mary. That's what angels say, because when they show up, people are afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel comes, the angel speaks to Mary, and this is the promise that he makes. What's Mary's response? Her response to that promise from the angel Gabriel was what we call the Magnificat. Luke chapter 1, verses, starting at verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. She's overawed. She's amazed. I can't even imagine what she's experiencing when this promise is made to her. But look how she concludes the Magnificat. Talking about God, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. Mary recognized in the promise of this child, finally we have the fulfillment. Not a piece, not a picture, we have the fulfillment that God who had obligated Himself has come through and He is to be born and He is to be born to the Virgin Mary. He obligated Himself and He has done it. Fascinating, wonderful, and amazing thing. Is that God Himself who passed through the pieces that have been cut walks that bloody pathway and obligates himself to keep the covenant. Sends the seed who himself is cut down for those who have not kept the covenant. In my place and in your place condemned he stood. To bear the penalty of the covenant breaker, not God. God is no covenant breaker, but you and I are covenant breakers. You and I are sinful before Him. And that, that oath that God made, in essence, is executed on Jesus for you and for me. And so we see a beautiful, powerful, saving picture of God's mighty work, and He promises it in this very unusual circumstance. And we see it developed in your life and mine as He redeems not just Abram who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, but He redeems you and me and anyone who will believe God. He will count it to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Father, this image 
of the smoking oven and the flaming torch passing between those pieces in such a gory display, such a visceral display, a very memorable display. is a wonderful picture of this salvation we have in Christ. As we look to the cross and we think of Jesus who is that seed, that offspring who is the fulfillment of these promises, we see Him suffering and dying. Not because He broke His covenant. He never has, never did, and never will. but because of my unfaithfulness to you, because of our unfaithfulness to you. We sinners need someone to die in our place. And so Jesus did. We are grateful for Jesus, our Savior, who took upon Himself the penalty for our sin, who Himself obeyed in our place that we might have the credit, the evidence His righteousness. Our sin is forgiven and we are redeemed, reconciled to you and we have peace with you. Father, we are grateful. I pray that we would go from here and encourage one another to be grateful for the fulfillment of this great promise that, that we see ultimately in Christ. You keep your word And we rejoice that you do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There will be a family up here to pray with you if you want to. Otherwise, God bless you all. And you're dismissed.